a really awesome day. And I get to preach, which is really exciting. Um, I don't know whether you've seen the film Ice Age. Seen the film Ice Age? It's a great film. Uh, it's about these three individuals who are so different from each other. They're kind of eccentric. You've got a, a mammoth called Manfred. You've got a sloth called Sid. Uh, and then you've got this, uh, this saber-toothed tiger called Diego. And these, this, this weird friendship forms. And they do life together. They go on mission together. There's a great scene where the tiger decides that he's fed up with his friends. He can do life without them as he wanders off by himself. But then he gets into trouble, gets into danger, and he finds himself hanging off this cliff. And suddenly the, the mammoth is there, Manfred is there, and he leaps over this chasm and he tosses Diego to safety and he rescues him. And, and the tiger is overwhelmed by, by the courage and the compassion of his friend. And he says these famous words, why did you just do that? You could have died saving me. And Manfred the mammoth says, well, well, we're family. And that's what families do. We stick together and we look out for each other. And then Sid the sloth says, yep, we're family, but we're one strange herd. We're one strange herd. And, and it's true, a mammoth, a sloth, and a tiger doing life together. What a crazy, strange herd. But in many ways, that's church, isn't it? That's what a healthy local church looks like. We are one strange herd. As I look out tonight, we are one strange herd. Different people, different backgrounds, different personalities, different likes, different dislikes, different education standards, different socioeconomic backgrounds. But we're family. We are family because we've got one heavenly Father who loves us. We've got one Savior whose name is Jesus who died for us. We've got one Holy Spirit who, who lives in us and empowers and equips us. We are family. And, and families look out for each other. And families care for each other. And families should do life together. And that's what Matthew 18 is all about. It's the fourth discourse in Matthew's gospel. We've had the, the missional discourse in Matthew 11. We've had the parabolic discourse in Matthew 13. Tonight we've got the ecclesiological discourse. This is all about church. It's all about how we relate as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because if you're here last week, we, we learned that, that individually, personally, you've got to answer the question, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he your Messiah? Is he your Lord? Have you denied yourself and taken up your cross and followed Jesus? Have you got a personal walk with Jesus? But Christianity is not just about you and God. When you start to follow Jesus, you belong to another family. And it's called church. And it's weird because we're one strange herd. And tonight we're going to learn about what it looks like to be family, the, the marks of being church. And here's my first word, it's humility, that humble posture. Look at verse 1 with me. At, at that time, the, the disciples came to Jesus and asked Jesus, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's a crazy question. The other gospels tell us the disciples were arguing among themselves who was the greatest? And he's not saying who's the greatest musician or sportsman or fisherman. He's saying 
Who's the greatest Christian? Which one of us, Jesus, is the best? Now, who's your favorite, Jesus? Now, who's more important to you? And you imagine that the banter, I'm more impressive than you are. I'm more important to Jesus than you are. I've got more to offer Jesus than you have. And you imagine that, that Peter, James, and John are, are feeling pretty smug at this point because they've just been up the mountain for the transfiguration. They're Jesus' closest friends. And they're probably thinking, we're his favorites. We are the greatest. Isn't it crazy? It's like there's something inbuilt within each one of us as human beings that we, we need to feel important. We want to feel superior. And the Bible calls that pride. Or, or some of us here are the exact opposite. You, you've lived your whole life thinking that you are inferior and that, that you are worse off than everybody else and you've slipped into self-pity. We're either prideful or we're self-pitying. And God says what makes you great in God's kingdom is, is not success, it's not status, it's not prestige, it's not power. What makes you great in God's kingdom it is not what you can offer God, what you can hold up to God and say, hey God, look what I did for you. How great am I, God? Look, God, I, I planted a church for you. Look, God, I led worship for you. Look, God, I led Bible studies for you. Look, God, I've done all these amazing things for you, God. Aren't I great? That's not the way it works. The greatest in the kingdom of God is defined by, by humility. That childlike posture that just says, Lord, I just need you. Lord, there's nothing I did to earn my salvation. Lord, there's, there's nothing I do every day that, that is worthy of anything, Lord. I just need you. That is true greatness, not pride, but humility, not superiority, but humility. And Jesus brings a visual aid in, in verse 2. He caused a little child to come to him and placed the child among them. And that's just this visual sign, this symbol, because the word for child there, or little child, is literally a toddler. And so you're supposed to imagine Jesus holding a one-year-old. And perhaps that child has got food smeared over their face, and the hair's a mess, and they're just babbling like a baby, going, mum, 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 mum. And Jesus looks at the disciples and says, okay, you're arguing about who's the greatest? This child. That is greatness. You're arguing about who is wonderful? Well, what's your attitude towards me are you dependent like a child are you recognizing your need like a child uh, jesus says truly verse three truly i tell you unless you change and become like little children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven therefore whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven let's think about little children let's think about toddlers jesus is not saying that Everything about a toddler is wonderful and perfect. Trust me. You know, toddlers, they, they bicker, they fight. They're nasty at times. They're irrational. He, he's not saying that childish behavior is okay. He's saying that that posture of dependency, that posture of just recognizing your utter need, as you know, we've uh, fostered little Enzo. We've had him for six months now, and he's just turned one. And having a one-year-old in your house is delightful. 
but it also reminds you of, of what it really means to be dependent. Because Enzo can't feed himself. He can't dress himself. He can do nothing by himself. Now, Enzo doesn't think about what he's going to do tomorrow or next week or next year because he's completely dependent on what Rachel and I are doing. And there's beautiful moments in our, our days when you walk into a room and he just smiles at you and he, he does this. It's kind of cute. He just reaches out his arms to you and smiles at you as if to say, oh, mum's here, dad's here. I, I feel safe now. Or mum's here, dad's here. Will you pick me up, please? Because he can't pick himself up. And that's that childlike dependency. Is that your attitude towards God? That you wake up each day and say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. You're my one defense, my righteousness. Lord, I need you. Is your attitude that, Lord Jesus, I need you to wrap your arms around me and Holy Spirit, I need you to empower me and equip me and, and Heavenly Father, I need you to hold me and to hear me. I just need you, God. Is your attitude to say, Lord, I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your love. I need your healing. I need your help. It's that posture that says that I just need you, God. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That's the great person, the person who is humbly dependent on God. Remember the story of the, of the little kid who was asked by his Sunday school teachers to, to memorize Psalm 23. And this, this kid's name was Bobby. He, he spent every day just reciting Psalm 23 to himself. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul. And the following Sunday morning, he stands up at the front of church just to recite Psalm 23. He's so excited. And then he has a brain freeze. And so he stands up and says, the Lord is my shepherd. And that's all I need to know. <laughs> and it's cute, but he's right. That's all you need to know. The Lord is your shepherd. God is your God. God will hold you, God will keep you, God will guide you, and that's all you need to know in life. So humility is the way into the kingdom of God. Verse 3, I tell you, unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom. So you can't enter God's kingdom. You can't become a Christian if you're bragging about yourself. The posture to, to enter God's kingdom is, is one of, of begging and humility, like the Canaanite woman who just fell at her feet before Jesus and said, yes, but Jesus, just give me some crumbs. I don't deserve anything from you, God. That, that's your posture before Jesus, to say, Jesus, I'm not worthy. Please forgive me. But the way into the kingdom is humility, and the way on in the kingdom is humility. You never grow out of humility. Verse 4, therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's the posture, the lowly position. And he's not talking about looking down on yourself. He's not talking about low self-esteem. He's not talking about woe is me. He's talking about getting rid of your pride and, and permanently having a posture of dependency on God. It's like when you go to McDonald's. You know those play areas at McDonald's? They are a filthy germ fest. But, <laughs> but my kids love them. 
And the kids just, just run straight into that play area, and they're playing on that play area. And then if you try to enter as an adult, there's a bit of a problem, because the door is about this high. And you as adults can't actually get in there unless you stoop low. And, and you can't play on the player if you wanted to, because it's a germ fest. You can't play on that player unless you're constantly stooping low. And Jesus is saying that that is the posture, your, your, your daily, hourly posture before God. You are stooping low because you're not being arrogant. You're not being proud. You're saying, I'm just a child of God, loved by God, cherished by God, and I deserve nothing but God. But praise you, God, that you've chosen me. That is the attitude. But I missed a phrase in verse 3. You might have spotted. I missed it. Look at verse 3 closely. He says, Truly I tell you, unless you change, unless you change and become like little children, because the implication is that we need to change. And the implication is that naturally we are not humble. humble. Naturally we are proud. Humility is not a virtue that our world values, is it? You are taught from a very early age to to make your mark, to be self-reliant, to be a somebody, and to be independent. I was on a school bus once with a bunch of school kids going to school, and there's this school mum with her kindy daughter. The the daughter was about five. And she's talking to her daughter going to school that morning. She's saying this, darling, you shine today. You show that class how wonderful you are. And it was horrific. But if we're honest, that's the way that we go through life. We have, we have bought into this worldly definition of greatness. And we still think subtly, we still think that greatness is when you've achieved something. And greatness is when you've been successful in life. And greatness is when you've, you've earned enough money to buy that amazing house in the most esteemed suburb. And, and greatness is when you are known. And greatness is when you've got your million followers on Instagram. And greatness is when you are somebody. But that's the worldview of greatness. That's not Jesus' view of greatness. Oh, but it's not just about the worldly accolades. It struck me this week that the disciples were not graduates of Oxford University. They didn't have worldly accolades to compete against each other. But they did what we often do in church. We play our Christian credentials to outplay each other. Oh, I went to Christchurch Knives for 10 years. I've studied at Moore College. Oh, you only went to SNBC. Oh, sorry, is that a bit harsh? Is this live stream? Do you think it is live stream? Oh, I, I've been asked to lead a connect group next year. And you start to feel proud about yourself. Let's be honest, we do it all the time, don't we? We play ourselves against each other because we like to feel that we are more important. Or you're walking to church on a Sunday night at seven, and, and rather than having the attitude of, Lord, just show me who I can serve tonight. Lord, just show me that person I can sit with and listen to and minister to. You, you strut in and say, here I am. Look, I'm here. It's that arrogance. To be honest, sometimes this is the hardest thing about being a pastor. To remain humble. Because thy kingdom come and my kingdom come are very, very intertwined. 
And especially if your church is growing, do you know that 7 p.m. has grown 61% in the last 12 months? And it's easy to go, wow, look at us. But humility says, no, all glory to Jesus. It doesn't come naturally humility. It's, it's beautiful, though, that posture of, I'm just a child of God, I'm just loved by God, I'm just chosen by God, and I'm totally dependent on God. I'm not a success story, I'm, I'm just a humble servant. So how do you stay humble? You stay humble by walking closely to the cross. You stay humble by walking closely with Jesus. You stay humble by waking up every day and say, I'm just a walking miracle of grace. Because greatness is not me compared to other people. Greatness is me compared to Jesus. He is the example of humility, isn't he? You want to talk about becoming like a little child? Well, the greatest man who ever lived became a little child. The greatest human who ever lived humbled himself and took on human flesh. He, he left the luxury of heaven and he became a child for you. And Philippians 2 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value other people above yourselves. Stop looking to your own interests, but look at the interests of other people. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, who humbled himself. Because he was in the very nature of God, but he didn't consider equality with God's son to be used. Rather, he made himself nothing. He humbled himself by taking on the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So as you keep looking at Jesus, it keeps you humble. And a marker of a, of a family that is a beautiful church is a mark of humility. None of us here are stars. We're all servants of Jesus. And that changes the way that you think about yourself. It changes the way that you think about other people. Look at verse 5. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, says Jesus. So the way that you welcome other believers into this church family, it will be a mark of your humility. Can you imagine it if Jesus looked at you? If Jesus looked at you and said... If I can't gain something from him or her, then I'm not going to bother with them. Can you imagine that? If I can't gain something from him, I'm not going to bother with them. That's not how Jesus treats you. You've got nothing to offer him. But he welcomes you. And if you've been welcomed by Jesus, then we are called to welcome other people. To welcome into the God's flock, to welcome into God's family, to welcome these little children in the name of Jesus. So church family is not about gaining anything from anybody here tonight. It's about giving, humbly welcoming anybody and everyone. And can I encourage you to model this humility in the way that you relate to other people? Please stop those five-second conversations where you are thinking to yourself, okay, what can I gain from this person? And you have a supper tonight in the courtyard and uh, you're talking to someone and thinking, oh, oh, you've got a holiday house. Oh, I, I, might, I might keep talking to you. <laughs> oh, you seem cool. You seem trendy. I, I think I'm going to hang out with you. Or you go, mm, you seem like hard work. You're going through some tough stuff right now. I, I, I don't want to bother with you because you might be a bit 
too tough for me. I'll let other people hang out with you. That's not the way of humility. That's not the way of Christ. It is so beautiful. You get so blessed when you hang out with people who are not like you. There's a couple at 10 a.m. who for 10 years, for 10 years, just hung out with this beautiful couple from the Greenway Housing Commission. This couple were incontinent, they were illiterate, but they loved Jesus. And this beautiful, wealthy couple from Mossman took them to hospital appointments, invited them to their home, invited them to their Christmas. They were just part of the family. And they would say, this couple from Mossman would say that they were blessed by the way that they welcomed this other couple into their lives. So a posture of humility. Number two, holiness, a pursuit of holiness. This is God's church. This is God's family, and God is holy, so this church should be holy. This church should be set apart for God. This this church should exhibit holiness. We should be pursuing holiness. We should be pursuing what is right and beautiful and pure and good and righteous. See, your holiness matters. Your holiness matters to God and it matters to each other. I hope you've understood that. Here's how it works. If you are my brother, if you're my sister, then your sin will impact me. If you're my brother or sister, then my my sin will impact you. That's how it works. Because we're not just individual, we're part of a family, and sin spreads. Sin causes dysfunction within God's church. I said before, my biological family back in the UK is completely dysfunctional. It's dysfunctional because there's been really bad behavior and terrible conduct and hurtful and harmful comments that's been swept under the carpet. It really does impact the family. Now, please don't bring that into the bridge church. So the things that we say, the way we say them, the way that we treat people, our behavior in secret and in public, that can cause other people to stumble in their faith. Robert Moe McShane was a pastor from ages ago, and he's got this beautiful comment about pastors. And I'm going to ask you, how would you finish the sentence? This is about pastors. He said this, my people's greatest need is... My people's greatest need is, and he says, my people's greatest need is, is my holiness. Your greatest need at 7 p.m. church is is my holiness and Betsy's holiness and Ellie's holiness and Justin's holiness. But it's more than that. Your greatest need is each other's holiness because we're family. Verses 6 to 9 are quite confronting. He said, if anyone causes one of these little ones, and and he, he switches analogy. He's not talking about toddlers. He qualifies that, those who believe in me. If anyone causes a believer in Christ, if anyone causes somebody who's humbly dependent on Jesus, if anyone causes that Christian, verse 6, to stumble, and the word for stumble is the word to trip. So he's talking about things that we do in church as Christians which cause another believer to, to wobble in their faith or to wander in their faith or to become worldly, the things that we do as individual Christians that cause other Christians to doubt or to dabble with temptation or to fall into patterns of sin. He says, verse 6, it would be better for that person, 
to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That is fairly black and white. A millstone was a huge, heavy stone, and so if you tied that around your neck and tossed into the sea, you would just drown. He says, it is so, so damaging when the sin of a Christian causes another Christian to, to stumble in their faith. That is so serious. That is devastating. And I know these are hard words for some people here tonight. It is horrific the how many teenagers have wandered from their faith aged 15, 16, 17 because of the bad behavior of other Christians in their youth group. The gossip, the slander, the nasty catty comments, they've caused people to stumble. How many people have wandered from God because of gossip and slander in this church? We've caused people to stumble. How many people are struggling in their faith right now because a pastor abused their position of authority? They abused it spiritually and they manipulated and guilted you into doing certain things or they abused you emotionally or abused you physically. So many people in the world want nothing to do with the church right now because of that we've caused people to stumble. We've all seen the devastating effects of high-profile pastors who have sinned, often covered up. And the church is shaken to the core and people are asking, what do I really believe these days? There's a truckload of people there who have stumbled in their faith because Christians behaved badly. Now, praise God for grace. Praise God for his grace, because I've stuffed up, and you've stuffed up. We've all stuffed up. We're not perfect. But Jesus is confronting us with this, this need to pursue holiness, because when we fail, and when we fall, and when we falter, and when we sin, it damages God's church. So we pursue personal holiness. We don't treat our sin lightly. When, when you sin, when you're caught in sin, you, you don't do the quick fix. 1 John chapter 1, you know, if you confess our sins, God is faithful and just and forgive us our righteousness. Uh, please forgive me, Lord. Let's move on. Now, sin is serious. Sinclair Ferguson says, if holiness, the holiness of God teaches us there's only one way to deal with sin, and that is radically, seriously, painfully and constantly and Jesus says in verse 8 if your hand or your foot causes you personally to stumble so there's something in your life a relationship an attitude a habit of yours that's causing you to to wobble or wander in your faith if you're caught in sin cut it off not literally cut it off and throw it away Deal with that sin radically. Make a radical choice in life to stop doing that thing. Because it's better for you to enter life, to go through your Christian life, walking closely with Jesus, crippled or maimed, than to have two hands and to stop following Jesus because of your sin. The Bible says, fight your sin, flee from your sin, have nothing to do with your sin. Remember Joseph, who was seduced by Potiphar's wife? He, he just fled. He just ran in the opposite direction. Sin is serious, it matters in this church. For your own personal holiness, but also for the host of this whole family. So humility, holiness, and then finally a heart, a heart for other people. Because God's heart is for every single 
Christian in this church. God loves every single Christian. You are precious to God. You are valuable to God. Verse 10, I see, see that you don't despise any of these little ones, he says. For I tell you that they're angels in heaven. That's a really interesting phrase. They're angels in heaven, not just one angel, not your guardian, but you've got a company of angels watching over you. And they always see the faith of my Father in heaven. He's just saying God sees you, God loves you, God knows you. God cares for you. And God cares for you when you are wandering away from him. God cares for you when you're wobbling in your faith. Verses 12 and 13, this story of a, of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. He's got a hundred sheep and one wanders. Now, the world of business would say, well, it's just one, one percent. Well, that's just, just, just write that one off. That's not the heart of God. God cares for every single sheep. God goes after every single sheep. God cares for the Christian who is wandering. He cares and goes after the brother or sister who is wobbling and trying to walk away. Why? Because every sheep matters. And when he finds that sheep, he's so happy, he delights in it because that's the heart of God. In verse 14, in the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. That's how God feels about us. He, he cares enough to pursue us. And that's how we should feel about each other. That we should care for the flock here at 7 p.m. because we're family. So when a brother or sister is wandering, when they're struggling in their faith, we don't just say, well, out of sight, out of mind. We say, are you okay? How are you doing right now? Can I sit with you? Can I pray with you? Can I listen to you? Can I love you? When a brother or sister is grappling with a particular sin, you show them grace and you point them to Jesus. And when they're being seduced by the world, you sit with them and you gently point them back to Jesus. Is that costly? Yes. Is it tiresome? Yes. Is it worth it? Of course it is. Because you bring back a wanderer. But what happens? What happens when somebody hurts you personally? Because church is full of imperfect people and we're going to hurt each other. Humility means having a hard conversation. Holiness means having a hard conversation. Verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, now look at the footnote B, sins against you personally. So he's talking about a situation in church, in your family, church family, where somebody here at 7 p.m. has wronged you, has hurt you, has harmed you. Now he's not talking about the occasional wrongs. So please don't become the holiness police that pull everybody up for every tiny thing. Let's not be nitpicking. But what happens if you've been hurt by somebody here at 7 p.m.? You don't just say, oh, well, just forget it, let's brush it under the carpet and then harbour resentment and bitterness in your heart. You don't actually need to bring everything to Betsy and I for us to sort it out. Jesus says, sort it out yourself. Verse 15, go tell them. Go speak with them because failing to speak with somebody who has hurt you and wronged you is failing to love them. But the way that you do that is really vital, verse 15. You speak to them in a way that doesn't embarrass them. You go and point out their fault just between the two of you. You, you show them that you care, not by gossiping, not by bad-mouthing, not by humiliating them, but, but you go privately for a one-on-one -on -one chat. Now, here's my light bulb moment this week. 
verse 15 has nothing to do with the fact that I've been wronged and I've been sinned against. This verse is not about me getting my apology. It's not about me feeling that I've got justice done. This, is, this verse is all about the person who has sinned, the person who has wronged you. This, this is actually loving this brother or sister enough, caring for their soul that you want to see them brought back to God. That's why you go. Your motivation is not to vent. It's not to make them squirm. It's not to win the argument or to feel good about yourself. The reason that you go is that you care for this person enough that you want to see them brought back to God again. Now, hopefully, verse 15 happens, and it says, if they listen, you've won them over. So if they say, oh, you're right, I'm so sorry, please forgive me, then you've brought them back to God. But trust me, it rarely works out that way. When you go for that gentle one-on-one, you often get a hostile reaction and say, how dare you? How dare you come to me like that? And when that happens, verse 16 kicks in. And verse 16 tells us to take one or two other people along with you so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now listen carefully. You don't take your best friends with you. You don't take your two best friends who can gang up against this person. You take spiritual leaders, mature people from the church with you. And as often been the case in in my situation, those mature leaders sometimes turn around and say, actually, Paul, you're in the wrong and they're in the right. You've got to be open to that. But notice again that this is, the privacy remains. It's just two other people who know about this. And if they listen, that's as far as it goes. But sometimes they still refuse to listen. Verse 17, if they refuse to listen still, tell it to the church, make it public. Again, not to embarrass the person, not to condemn the person, not to humiliate them, because your heart is for people and you long to see this wandering soul brought back into the fold. And last resort, verse 15, you treat them as as a pagan or a tax collector. And that seems harsh. But all he's saying is, let them be the rebellious person that they want to be, Of course they're welcome in the church. Church doors are open to anybody and everybody. But you're not going to treat them as part of the family at this point in time until this has been resolved. How many times do you keep forgiving your brother or sister? 77 times. Because Jesus has forgiven you an incredible debt. And at verse 20, about where two or three are gathered, there I am with them. That is not a lazy excuse why not to come to church. You can't say, oh, look, I'm just sipping lattes with my friends at the beach. But there's three of us there, so God's with us and we're doing church. That's not what that verse is about. This verse is about the two or three witnesses that you take with you. And when you take two or three witnesses with you to deal with this problem, God is there with you. And God is the one who will bring that person back to himself. And I've loved preparing this sermon, but it's been quite confronting. Because I feel like God is saying to me, Paul, how many... People have wandered from this church and nobody bothered to follow them up. How many people have wobbled in their faith because of the bad behavior of Christians at the Bridge Church that was never really dealt with? How many people have been wronged and hurt by me? I never had a chance to deal with that. It's been quite confronting. 
Because God loves his church, and we are one strange herd, aren't we? We're just weird. But God calls us to humility, to holiness, and a heart for other people. Let me pray. I'm going to give you a moment by yourself just to invite the Spirit just to highlight one thing, just one thing that he wants to teach you tonight. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your humility, that you would stoop low, become one of us, walk that lonely road to Calvary, to bear our sin and our shame on your shoulders. Lord Jesus, please would you keep us humble, keep growing us in our humility, keep growing us in our holiness. I want to pray tonight, Lord, for people who once sat in this building but have wandered from this church or wandered from you or wobbling in their faith. Lord, you, you know them, you cherish them, they are valuable to you. Hold on to them, Lord, please, and please forgive us. Please give us a heart, a heart for people. In Jesus' name, amen.